Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. A uh, little bit of uh, backstory, a little history of uh, this place for just a moment before we dive into the message this morning. Uh, I have to take you back yeah, about 10 years uh, to the, the pastor who was, was a lead pastor here at the time. Uh, some of you remember Nick Stumbo uh, and his family. And when Nick was here, he had a deal with his wife and kids. And the deal was that when he mentioned them in a sermon, without getting their permission first, the kids got ice cream and his wife got coffee. This was the deal. My wife is already excited about this story. <laughs> so is my 10-year-old. Okay. They've been paid off already. Anyway, uh, I have a distinct memory of uh, sitting right about over here uh, on a Saturday night and uh, Nick's two oldest, which, by the way, those of you who remember Nick and his family, his eldest is a senior in high school this year, and I have no idea how that happened. Anyway, uh, I have very vivid memory of them about 10 years ago. They were kind of sitting down on the floor uh, between the chairs because they weren't really paying attention to dad. They're coloring or whatever. They're like six and eight, uh, and they're, they're entertaining themselves while dad does his thing. Um, and at some point, he said something, I don't remember if he mentioned their names or just said something about them, but they popped up like meerkats, like boing. <laughs> and they looked at each other like, yes, because they knew they were getting ice cream and they were really excited about it. So when I started doing this on a regular basis, my family decided, my family decided for me that this was a fantastic deal to make. And as I said, Pretty sure uh, Nick's came with a caveat of like asking for permission first. I don't know if they just fully don't trust me to ask for permission or they just want to skip that step. Uh, last night after talking about this, I was uh, chatting with my 13-year-old and, and I said, so what do, you, what do you think about adding this like permission part? Like if I get your permission first, you don't get ice cream. And she's like, well, then I wouldn't give you permission. Like, <laughs> What? want the ice cream. She knows how to play the system, apparently. Uh, all of that background to say that I owe, I owe them ice cream this week, and they have been paid off already. Uh, but can, can I share a statistic with you? You don't really have a choice. I have the microphone. Can I share a statistic with you that scares me that I heard earlier this summer, and I heard it on Facebook, so it must be true. Good, you guys laughed. I was a little worried for a second. Uh, okay, so this is actually a Facebook story. A, a friend of mine, like a, a real person, I know this person, uh, they live in a different part of the country now, but they are uh, sending their only child, their only daughter, off to college this year. She graduated in the spring. She's headed off to college this fall, and she has understandably been trying to figure out how to process this fact this summer. And so apparently she was talking to one of her neighbors where she lives about this. And he decided, I think incorrectly, that the neighborly thing to do was to say, oh, hey, I heard this statistic. And I apologize now to all parents, especially those of you uh, with, with high school, young adult children. Uh, I heard this statistic that by the time you send your kids off to college, 
you have spent 80% of the time with them that you will ever spend. 80%. Now, 92.7% of statistics are made up on the spot. Like that one. Um, Let's see, when I make them up on the spot, I just put whatever numbers in there I want. Anyway, so I decided not to trust a statistic I heard on Facebook, and I thought I would do a little math. Also questionable, but I thought I'd give it a shot. Now, I couldn't figure out how to do hours. That got to be too much for my brain, but I could do, I could do days. And I couldn't figure out how to project this forward for my family, but I could think about me and my relationship with my dad. I was living at home for a year after I graduated from high school, so my first 19 years with my dad. Been 20 years since, and uh, my dad is in his early 70s, so let's say for optimism's sake, we get another 20. I did the math. My dad lives on the other side of the state. We see him a couple times a year. I think for me, it was actually closer to 90%. 90% of my time with my dad was in my first 19 years, which maybe should make me reconsider how my relationship with my dad functions, but mostly it scared me as a parent. (laughs) And it made me go, oh, okay, I have five years left with one of these kiddos before my 90% is done. Now, I know everybody's story is a little different. Some live closer to their parents than others, but I have five years left with one and eight years with the other until my 90% is done. So what am I gonna do to maximize that time, to invest in that time as, as much as I can, to nourish that relationship now so that it can continue to be healthy and to grow later when we're going through much tougher things? So uh, last year, before we knew this statistic, even one of the things that Wendy and I did was we uh, had a weekly uh, parent-daughter date night. So uh, she'd date one daughter, I would date the other one week, and then we'd, we'd, we'd flip. We'd take them out to food, dinner, whatever, uh, connect with them that way. Uh, this year, our schedule doesn't seem to allow for that. And so I'm asking questions in the morning before school, and I'm trying to have conversations at night around bedtime. So maybe bedtime doesn't happen as smoothly or as quickly as we might like, but uh, the conversations are happening. I'm I'm trying to talk to them and ask questions as I'm transporting them from thing to thing, because some days that's where I see them the most, is from thing to thing, activity to activity. Trying to cultivate conversation, keep the communication going. Trying to cultivate hard questions from them, ask loving questions of them, trying to be a safe space for dreams and fears. Now, for me, I I, I guess I don't have any statistics or scientific proof to back this up. I believe that a, uh, I'm gonna need you to do uh, clicking because this isn't doing it. Uh, I believe that a healthy relationship means sharing, communicating hopes, dreams, and fears. Healthy relationships communicate hopes, dreams, and fears. So 
if you're not sharing hopes, dreams, and fears in a relationship, that's going to cap or limit how deep that relationship can go. Even a relationship with your coworkers, maybe they don't need to know your hopes and dreams and fears around your family or your kids, but, but how about around your job? Do they know what your hopes and dreams and fears are for the work that you do together? Relationships are deeper, healthier when we communicate these things. Now, do I do this perfectly? Absolutely not. I'm not even sure that I do it well. Most days, uh, shallow conversations are just easier. Some days I forget the hug or I love you. Some days I'm just super self-centered and I get real focused on me. Some days I get super self-conscious and I decide that they don't actually want to talk to me. But the goal is to nourish them as my kids and to nourish our relationship so that it lasts through the times that are coming. And I'm aware that at 13 and 10, there are tougher times likely coming. Now, I say that I only have five years left. As some of you have experienced, it can be much longer than that. And at the moment, I'm hoping for that. I don't know how I feel five, 10 years from now, but currently, that sounds good. On the other hand, I say that I have five years left, but I don't know that I actually have that many. Scripture is really clear that life changes fast and that we're not promised tomorrow. And as much as we may make plans for tomorrow and think about all the tomorrows to come, we don't have to look around at too many other people's stories, if not our own, to go, oh yeah, life happens fast. And we are not guaranteed tomorrow. We know that. We've seen it in story after story. And so when we say that we are everyday people following Jesus every day, part of the truth in that statement is that we're putting the emphasis on every day. Because this is the day that we have. This is the day we know that we have. We're not promised Tomorrow. So, what are we doing today and every day to nourish our relationships with the people that God has called us to love, those close to us and those not, those we want to love and those we don't? What are we doing each and every day to love the people that God has placed in our life? What are we doing each and every day to nourish our relationship with them and our relationship with God? Last week, we talked about the reality that God, through Jesus, has claimed us as his children, that he is our heavenly father. And, and I know that this analogy is helpful in many ways, and for some of you, because of your relationship with your father, it can also be really unhelpful. But the truth is that through the resurrection of Jesus, we have been born into a new life and a new family, that we have a relationship with a heavenly father, a relationship to nourish, a heavenly father to be nurtured by, to be nourished by. Every day is an opportunity in our relationship with our heavenly father to share our hopes and dreams and fears with him. And with God as our father, every day is an opportunity to be nourished and loved by him. In the Gospels, the stories we have of Jesus' life 
we see over and over again that he would intentionally choose to step away from the demands of people and ministry and go spend time with his heavenly father, that he would get away from the demands that people were making on him and make an intentional point to nourish his relationship with God. Now, he also made it an intentional point to nourish his relationship with the people around him, the people God had placed in his life. We see him over and over again through his care and love and compassion and teaching, nurturing his relationship with those closest to him. And one of those people closest to Jesus was a guy named Peter. Peter was one of Jesus's 12 disciples, sort of his inner group. But then there was an even closer group, Peter, James, and John, that knew everything about Jesus as far as they could possibly comprehend it and understand it. Much later, Peter would become one of the key leaders, uh, well, all 12 of those guys, Peter included, would become the key leaders in that early church movement, that after Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven to live forever, to rule forever, Peter was in charge of helping people figure out how to follow Jesus every day and follow his teachings, follow his example. And he'd do that in a number of different ways. He would travel around, he'd preach, he'd teach, he'd do life on life with people. He also wrote letters to groups of people trying to encourage them or correct them or instruct them, give them hope. And we have a couple of those letters preserved for us in the New Testament. We've been looking through uh, one of those, 1 Peter. Uh, and in this first letter, among many other things, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 says this. This is verse 2. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. We've talked about this new life that we've been born into, uh, an eternal life that's lived out in this temporary home of earth. And so Peter then builds on this metaphor. He says, okay, you've been born again into this new life, this life that needs to be nourished. And the only way to be nourished well, the only good and true nourishment that you're going to find will come from God himself. Now, if you have ever spent time around a newborn baby, you know that mostly they sleep. But when they're awake, what they do is they scream, they eat, and they poop. Like that's occasionally they babble or giggle something cute so that we keep them around. But basically, because I mean, let's be real, we wouldn't put up with anybody else that just all they did while they were awake was scream, eat, and poop. We'd be like, I'm, I'm done with you. I don't need you, actually. But the, I don't know how many times I would look at my kids and go, it is a good thing God made you cute. Because I, I don't know if this would work out for us without you being really adorable. But while a newborn baby is awake, the predominant thing, that the, like the, the most of their time is spent craving milk, eating milk, digesting milk. That's sort, of, that's sort of how it goes. They crave, they eat, they digest. And when a newborn baby is hungry, they crave nothing else 
And when they're, they're hungry, they know what they want. And uh, if you've ever tried to distract a baby from, from being hungry, it can be their favorite show. It can be their favorite, who am I kidding? Babies are a lot like teenagers. It's their favorite show, their favorite toy. They're hungry. It's what, what they want right now. And this is the metaphor that Peter is pulling us toward, that we should crave God the way a baby craves milk. We should crave God the way a baby craves milk. We should crave the nourishment of God the way a baby craves their mother's milk. Okay, so a a little pause for reflection here. I wanna make sure that I don't accidentally set this up as a performance task. I know, I know that it is easy when a preacher guy gets up on a platform like this and says, well, you just need to want it to go, oh, well, that's the problem. I just don't want it enough. Well, what does that say about me that I just don't want it enough? That's not what I'm trying to get us to at all this morning. I know, I know that's easy to go there. I think it is far healthier rather than reflecting on do I want it enough, like there's some magic bar that we're supposed to hit. To think about it maybe in a couple different ways. First, I'd love to have you reflect on some time in your life, if this has ever been true for you, that you craved a relationship with God, that you craved interaction, you craved that nourishment, you craved the lessons maybe even, even if they came the hard way, you craved the presence of God. What made you crave that? What was it that drove you to want that nourishment, that closeness with God? Maybe you were feeling particularly desperate. Life was particularly hard. Maybe you'd come to some point where you just knew you couldn't do it. Where your self-perception was so low, you just wanted something else. Maybe for you, it was a walk in the sunshine or a camp high that you went, oh, I want more of that. I want more of this goodness. What is it? that motivated you to crave God in those times when you did? And then the flip side question to ponder and think about, and we're only spending a few moments this morning, but I I hope you'll spend some more time digging into this in a journal or in prayer. The flip side question, when you don't crave that, when you don't want God's presence in your life, God's instruction or correction. What causes that? What holds you back? What stops you? Maybe it's just not exciting enough. Maybe you're afraid of what God will ask you to do.
maybe you needed him for a time and, and you've started to believe that, well, what God really wants is he wants me to be able to do it on my own. So, okay, God, yeah, I needed you for a moment, but now I can walk and I can run on my own and I can, I can do this thing myself. What, what stops you from craving that nourishment, that relationship? When Peter says that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness, he's hearkening back to this ancient psalm. This is Psalm 34, verse eight. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. The kindness that we've now tasted, Peter says, is the grace and love and life of Jesus. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. There is a lot about newborns, having newborns, that I do not miss. Some of them smellier than others. Probably chief among them, though, the thing that I don't miss is, getting, is me trying to hold a child while also holding onto a bottle while they scream at me and kick at me and flail at me because I am not mama and neither is that bottle and that surely will not do for them. Not a lot of fun and a particularly helpless feeling. I love that you're apologizing 10 years later. It's good, you're forgiven. I appreciate the apology though. But those moments when they would settle in and take the bottle and let me hold them, those are the best. Those are the moments I miss. Peter says that God has all the goodness we need. That we can come to him for the nourishment that our souls and our lives need. That we try all of these ways in our lives to, to fill it up and fill our soul and our heart and our mind with empty things that don't nourish, but God has the nourishment we actually need. And when we will settle into him, when we will take the nourishment he has for us, we will find that he is good. We will find that we can trust him. Oh, the joys for those who take refuge in him. Who settle into his arms and find that he is good. And I know that this is a more intimate picture of our relationship with God than a lot of us are comfortable with, probably myself included. And that's kind of the point, that there is an intimacy to giving ourselves and our lives over to God, to giving ourselves over to him each and every day. But it is in giving ourselves over to him, in trusting him to be our refuge and our source of life, that we find joy. That giving ourselves over is the key to joy in our lives. And like Jesus did as he pulled himself away from, from ministry and, and the hard work and, and allowed himself to be strengthened, to find joy in his relationship with the Father, we will 
also find the joy and strength for all of our other everyday relationships when we are nourished every day by God. As Peter says in the other letter preserved for us, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Like every other human being on earth, our desires for status and sex and comfort will corrupt our motives and our love and our relationships. God has promised a better, more abundant, more flourishing, more beautiful way of life. Now, what promises is Peter talking about? He's, he's talking about the promises in this book the promises of scripture. You may feel like God has promised you a house or a job or a spouse, and that may be true for you. But what Peter is calling us to respond to is the promises of scripture. What he's calling us to crave are the promises God has given us here. Promises of God's power, not yours. Of his presence, not your comfort. Of his joy, his grace, and his love, for you, these gifts that he offers us, these promises that are fulfilled as we accept those gifts, his promise that he will nourish you if you will simply come and taste and see. These are the promises that we respond to in obedience. As Peter continues, verse five. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the general rule, the general rule for nourishment. Those who crave are nourished. Those who are nourished grow. Those who crave are nourished. Again, general rule. Those who crave are nourished. Those who are nourished grow. This is the metaphor of the newborn baby that Peter is trying to draw our attention to and the lesson in that, that story, that metaphor. Now, obviously, there are significant exceptions to this rule. If we crave and are tried to be nourished by unhealthy things, then either it won't satisfy or the satisfaction won't last or it will do unhealthy things to us and our bodies and our lives or some combination therein. We also all likely know somebody, some parents who did everything right and their baby simply didn't grow the way we would expect or hope. That happens. It's nobody's fault. I know, and I'm guessing you may too, 
know the spiritual equivalent of this in, in some people's lives. They ate up scripture. They gained moral excellence and knowledge, but they simply didn't grow. Now, maybe that was because they were unwilling to go through hard things and gain some patient endurance. Maybe they couldn't humble themselves as Christ did. They were too puffed up on their moral excellence and knowledge. Maybe they couldn't grow in their brotherly love for everyone because they were too focused on making sure that all the people around them were people who already agreed with them. But the exceptions actually prove the rule. If we want to grow in all of these areas to become better imitators of Christ in character and in action, we must grow in our desire for that nourishment, in our craving to let God grow us. There are two sides to this relationship. There are two sides to every relationship, our relationship with God included. God's promises, his desire for us to grow, his promises and willingness to nourish us, that's, that's one side. Our response to those promises, our craving that intimacy and taking steps toward growth, that's, that's our part. God promises we respond. As we've talked about before in, in talking about worship and, and what worship is, that's a fairly good basic definition of, of worship. God reveals and we respond. God reveals, we respond. This is worship. God reveals his promises of goodness and refuge. And we respond to those promises. This is the daily call for the follower of Christ that as God reveals himself, we respond. He leads, we follow. Every day. For Peter, as he writes this second letter, he knows that he doesn't have very many everydays left. And in light of God's promises, in light of the fact that the people he's writing to are people that he cares about and loves, he's got some things he wants to remind them of God's promises and goodness. He wants to remind them of the things that he himself, Peter, has seen. So we'll skip down a few verses to verse 12. Therefore... I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. And it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. So I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I am gone. And then catch this. If you tuned out on me, catch these next couple. For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. 
You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Peter is recounting eyewitness testimony to them of what's happened. And it gives him even more confidence in what the prophets have said in the truth of scripture because he's seen the promises of God fulfilled in his very own life right before his very own eyes. And he's telling these people that he loves and ministers to that they too should have confidence in what the prophets have said and in the words of scripture and that those words are like a light shining into the darkest parts of their life. So let's take a couple minutes to talk about what scripture is and then I'll be all done. Scripture is the promises of God. Scripture is the promises of God, the promises of grace, of judgment, of salvation, of a present and future hope. The promises that we respond to by loving God and loving others. Scripture is instructions for growth that God has set out the best principles of life, these rules and expectations and ideals, and said, if you go this way, there is a flourishing, beautiful, abundant life down this path. Here are the expectations I want you to walk in because I built you for a life that looks like this. And as we live into those principles, we are nourished and we grow. I love that giggle. As we look to and follow the examples of Jesus, we're nourished and we grow. Now, the Bible is not primarily, contrary to some popular opinion, uh, an instruction manual or a moral code. It is primarily the story of God's love for humanity, for you and for me and for all of us. Not just the people who gather in church on a Sunday morning, but all of humanity, it is God's love for us. But it does contain then, as part of that story of love, these principles and ideals and hopes and expectations and dreams for humanity, the instructions and principles that we need to be nourished and to grow. Now that story of God's love is written out by human people, by real people as an eyewitness testimony. Scripture is an eyewitness testimony, specifically as we talk about the New Testament of Scripture. Okay, so we've got the Old Testament of Scripture that contains some eyewitness testimony and some other stories and other things in it, some other truth in it. And then the New Testament is essentially made up of letters that Peter and his friends, the other leaders of the early church, sent out to people to tell the story of Jesus, to remind them of what is true, to lay out some instructions, to give them reasons to hope. They're they're letters written by people to people. And the people who received them in the early church, they didn't receive them as scripture. They didn't receive them as part of holy text. They received them as letters, but they received them as reports of what is true eyewitness testimony of what people had seen and experienced. 
Peter and his friends had watched these things in their lives. Peter writes to them and says, look, Jesus is holy and perfect. I heard God declare it with my own ears. Jesus died. I know it happened. I was there. And that same Jesus was raised from the dead. I know because I had breakfast with him on the beach. I got to sit with him and talk to him. I watched him ascend into heaven. He was there and then he wasn't and there were angels and it was crazy. Peter doesn't believe that Jesus is the savior because he believes the Bible is historically accurate. He, he doesn't have hope because the scriptures are scientifically defendable. He has hope and he believes in Jesus as his savior because he watched it happen in front of him. Because he walked with God and talked with God and saw God's promises revealed in his life. And he has a story to tell of God's goodness to him in a really personal way. He and his friends didn't send out letters saying, hey, you better believe this because this is gonna be in a book called the Bible one day and that's gonna be important. You should believe the things we're saying. They sent out letters saying, hey, here's what we saw and it has changed everything for all of us. Here's what we know. Here's what we saw. Let me tell you about it. Now, Peter and the other eyewitnesses did spend some time looking back at what they called scripture, what we call the Old Testament. And having had these things revealed to them right in front of them, to go, okay, uh, actually now I'm reading scripture differently. Because I'm, I'm reading through these texts that we grew up with, these things that we've known for a long time, and we built some expectations on some combination of what the text says and, and what some teachers were telling us, which by the way, um, from a person who teaches, uh, please don't just believe the things the teachers say. Like, like please check it against scripture. Please check it against uh, what others may uh, have in mind or have thought voices that you know you can trust. Turns out that I'm a flawed human being who gets things wrong. I don't think I'm sharing anything wrong this morning or I would have changed it. Not trying to do that, but please check it. They looked back at scripture given what they had seen and heard from Jesus. And all of a sudden they're seeing Jesus in the scripture in a way that they never anticipated. They had some ideas of who the Messiah was gonna be and that he was gonna free them from Rome and now they look back at the prophets and there's Isaiah saying, hey, by his stripes, we're healed. Oh, like not like a tiger or a zebra, but like a whipped guy who got beaten up, who took on the suffering, Isaiah says, for us. And that by his suffering, his pain, we're healed. Oh, you know, I've read Psalm 22 my whole life. It never quite made sense to me, but Jesus quoted the first line of it on the cross. And now I read this Psalm about a guy who dies and rises from the dead and it changes everything. And it makes a lot more sense now. It's like God has had this plan all along. <laughs> like what we just watched 
was not something that came out of nowhere, but is God's promises fulfilled in our lives. And now we need to tell everybody about it. These prophets, these words of scripture were inspired by God to point to his promises yet to be fulfilled. I wanna take just a quick second to point at what we officially believe about scripture as the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's the denomination we're a part of. So this is from the CMA Statement of Faith and it's our statement of faith as well. The Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for our salvation. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. In other words, these are the instructions of how we follow Jesus. That's the rule of Christian faith and practice. And this is the story of God's love for us and his provision of salvation for us. Everything we need to know about how we are saved from this world and born into a new eternal life in this temporary home is in this book. And we believe that this book, both the Old and New Testament, as we look back at scripture, was verbally inspired by God. Eyewitness reports and other stories written by human hands, but inspired by God to do so. And when we say, well, well, where in scripture do we base this idea from? There's a number of different scripture references. One of them is these next two verses in 2 Peter. Chapter one, verse 20. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. They're inspired by God. They spoke from God. This book is the words of God, the story of his love, his instructions for us. So scripture is promises, it's instructions, it's testimony. It is God speaking to you. Scripture is God speaking to you. It is your heavenly father nourishing his relationship with you. It's him communicating his hopes and dreams and warnings for your life and communicating those things to you. The God of the universe would like to speak with you, to share with you and have you share with him, to nourish and nurture that relationship, to nourish and nurture you. And we need this nourishment every day. We need to crave it, to receive it, to show up for it even when we don't feel like it, to be nourished, to grow. And as you are nourished and as you grow, watch. Watch like the disciples did. 
Watch the things happen that stir up an eyewitness testimony. Watch as the, the hopes and dreams that God has for your life, he's communicating to you. Watch as those hopes and dreams become promises fulfilled in your life. As we seek to do that together, as the worship team comes up, will you join me in prayer? Father God, we know that we are in need of you. God, I know that some people walked in here this morning really wanting to be here, really wanting you. God, would you meet us in that desire? And I know that some of us walked in here this morning not wanting to be here. We're here out of duty. We're here out of guilt. We're here because somebody told us we had to be. God, would you meet us in that place as well? Because whatever our motivation, whatever our drive, whatever our cravings are, God, the truth is that we are in need of you. We're in need of the instructions that you have for us so that we can live that beautiful, flourishing life. We're in need of your love and your grace. God, we wanna know what hopes and dreams you have for us, for humanity, for our world, for our lives. Father, in whatever way we need it, would you share with us? And would you remind us as we walk through every day to share our lives with you, to show up, to find our refuge and our joy in you? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.